Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. In today's program, our focus is on the impact of the changes made in the new trilateral trade agreement among the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, recently enacted to help level the playing field in terms of labor costs across all three countries. The agreement imposes certain liabilities on U.S. and Canadian employers doing business in Mexico and will dramatically affect workers in Mexico and the ability to unionize their workplace. Moderating our discussion is Susan Spradley, partner at Gray Robinson in Florida. We also had the chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance of the discussion to gather their questions, and our panelists will be addressing those in their commentary. Let's join Susan as she introduces this program and moderates the discussion. Thank you, Peter, and hello, everyone, and thank you for being with us today. We're looking forward to a great discussion. This past July, the United States, Mexico, and Canada entered into a new free trade agreement to replace NAFTA. So today our speakers are going to discuss the workings of this trilateral agreement. Our panelists today are Juan Carlos de la Vega, partner at Santa Marina Esteta, Mexico, Greg Haywood, founding partner at Roper Grail, British Columbia, David Fortney, co-founder at Fortney Scott, District of Columbia. And we have a special guest, Matthew Levin, the director of the U.S. Office of Trade and Labor Affairs, Bureau of International Labor Affairs. Matthew's office is responsible for enforcing the labor provisions of the free trade agreement. So to overview what the panelists are going to speak about, they will discuss new labor union standards and cross borders, focus on anti-discrimination on the basis of gender identity, elimination of forced labor and child labor and violence against employees, potential penalties for employers and enforcement matters, and practical advice on how to comply with the new rules and the workplace standards. The speakers have all reviewed the pre-submitted questions, and we do expect the speakers are going to answer many of them in their presentations, but still please submit your questions today as new ones arise in case you haven't submitted a question already. And we will save our Q&A for the end of the presentations, and we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Matthew, and he will lead us off. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Susan. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I think the way I'd like to lay this out is we're going to talk a minute or two about how we got here and, and what we had under NAFTA. And at that point, what I hope to do is to relay to you why the new trade agreement should matter to you as lawyers and how you can best be responsive to your constituents and your clients. So what I wanted to start with first was just to take a second to like focus on what we all think of as a free trade agreement. And certainly most people don't consider labor as part of what is you know, normally considered a transactional agreement between governments. So let's keep our eye on the ball that in fact, Free trade agreements are state-to-state -state agreements. They're not involving you know, companies or individuals. These are agreements between governments. So we're going to talk a little bit later about why USMCA is slightly different than that model, but I thought it was important to at least make that notion because quite often when I'm speaking to even the smartest labor lawyers, they often forget that we're dealing with countries here and not individuals or companies. Let's see how we got here. So in 1994, NAFTA was enacted. It was the largest free trade agreement in the world at the time. It was the first one to have the notion of labor protections. Those protections were not within the agreement itself. 
labor, as was environment, was part of a side agreement called, with regards to labor, the North American Agreement on Labor Cooperation. Uh, predominantly, that agreement was not enforceable. And, you know, we've all over 25 years kind of lived with what the labor status was between Mexico and Canada, despite the fact that the United States has enacted 12 other agreements with progressively, for the most part, stronger labor protections. We're talking about a deal in USMCA now between Mexico and Canada looking at around $1 trillion. And yet up until this past January, we were dealing with labor protections that were you know, wonderful in 1994, but long past overdue for change in 2000. And the U.S. administration trying to modernize and rebalance NAFTA was focused strongly on labor, right? Where did the jobs go? What happened to manufacturing in the United States? These were strong motivations for the Trump administration to want to renegotiate. So there was a grand focus on labor starting from the beginning of our negotiation. Okay, so what's new and why does it matter? Let's talk right up front about what's important, I think, to you all. So there are uh, three significant changes that come along with USMCA. One is that the labor chapter now is part of the overall agreement, which makes the provisions fully enforceable through dispute settlement. The provisions are unquestionably the strongest labor provisions in any trade agreement. So the obligations between the three countries are the strongest in the labor context. They are enforceable. And it should matter to you and your clients because the governments of Mexico and Canada and the United States have to live up to these obligations. There's a first of its kind labor annex, which is at the back of the labor chapter, which required Mexico to commit to, and now Mexico has passed historic labor law reform. And I know my good friend Juan Carlos will go into depth as to what changes are required under the new Mexican labor law. So we now have strong obligations in the agreement, strong obligations in the law. And then finally, we have a first of its kind rapid response labor mechanism where cases can be brought against specific companies, we'll talk about this later, and have expedited dispute settlement. Again, as I said before, this is a state-to-state -state agreement, so I, I understand it's slightly confusing and we will spend some time on it. But those three changes alone should matter to you and your clients. What else has changed? So the labor chapter itself, like any other labor chapter, has baseline labor provisions that need to be met. In almost every trade agreement, we talk about internationally recognized labor rights. The term is different sometimes, but essentially it means rights to freedom of association and collective bargaining, rights to oppose workplace discrimination, the elimination of forced and child labor. And then over the last several trade agreements, we've graduated rights under acceptable conditions of work, which includes wages, overtime, and occupational safety and health. So those basic requirements are in any labor chapter, and countries are expected to live up to international standards on those. That's a given. 
But what's new in USMCA are these additional protections. This goes above and beyond what I just talked about with regards to the, the annex and rapid response. But these provisions now are required under the labor chapter in USMCA. So there is a prohibition against goods being produced by forced labor. One might ask, well, there's already a protection against forced labor. Correct that that protection is between the parties. This provision talks about importation of goods by forced labor from anywhere. And the government of Canada passed new legislation along with their implementation of the trade agreement itself to meet that standard. Violence against workers, both in the workplace and in exercising their labor rights is new. You can imagine why we would have a provision about migrant workers. That was included as well, making sure that they're protected under labor laws. And then additional protection against sex-based discriminations that each country should have policies to address such. So these are all new provisions that countries need to enforce to live up to their obligations under the trade agreement. Let's talk a little bit about the second reason why the USMCA should matter to labor lawyers. So as I just noted, there are far more labor protections in the agreement itself. But let's talk about what's changed in Mexico under the annex. So Mexico is obligated to meet the provisions of the annex. And I know Juan Carlos is going to go in, in depth on this. But there is, without Mexico's agreement to satisfy these provisions in the annex, and let's be clear, these are all steps to address protection contracts to allow for legitimate collective bargaining and allow for, I think the belief is, not only better protections for workers, but greater wages. And you can do the math on you know, where the notion about wages come from and, and why there's concern about low wages in Mexico. The May 1st, 2019 labor reforms in Mexico are beyond historic. It changes the landscape that had been in place for over 125 years. It commits Mexico to create two brand new institutions across the entire country in the federal center for conciliation and labor registration, as well as a whole new set of labor courts in all 32 states, not just under federal jurisdiction, but as well in local jurisdiction. This is no small undertaking, but th without that, there is no deal. So, you know, as, as one of my colleagues said a few minutes before we got on this call, we've created a lot of business for you all and for the Mexican government. And, uh, and as I, I told my colleague, I was on the phone with the gentleman who was just appointed the head of the federal center he isn't sleeping much. There's an enormous amount to do in addressing how to verify legitimate collective bargaining agreements, how to certify legitimate unions, and all this in the context of a, a COVID world. So the Mexican annex and the subsequent labor reform is certainly something you all should be acquainted with. I was doing one of these presentations when we used to be able to travel. I was in Miami and it was one of these Fortune 500 events. And after my presentation, no one from any company was really sitting with me until someone from, I think his company is one of the largest employers in Mexico, kind of slipped over and he said, Matt, I don't know what to do. 
We have 200 plus protection contracts that are now about to become illegal. What do I say to my employees? And I said, you know, you call one of you guys, <laughs> call your lawyers and figure it out. I'm gonna move forward. So when I said there were three reasons that USMCA matters for labor lawyers, maybe there's three and a half. And in fact, at the end, I'm gonna go to four. But when we talked about wages, we brainstormed for quite a while during the negotiation about how to get to the difference in wages between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And every model we, we went through was a failure. And eventually in the labor chapter, we gave up. But that didn't mean that the issue was dropped. And in fact, with automotives, and this may impact many of you, with regards to auto, the wages issue was included in a new labor-themed content. So the labor value content requirement provides that if an auto manufacturer wants to benefit from reduced tariffs of USMCA, certify that at least 40% of the car that they're shipping was produced on an assembly line by workers making at least $16 an hour. This is a brand new provision. It's not in the labor chapter. It's in the rules of origin chapter. It is enforced through the Department of Labor working with customs. It's the one part of USMCA that my office does not do. It's, it's done through our wage hour division, which makes a lot of sense because it's, it's studying wage charts and who's being paid what. But this is the way that wages were addressed because the studies were that hourly workers on auto assembly lines in Mexico were making $4 an hour in Canada, 27 and in the United States, 28. So this is just a digression. I just thought that you all might be interested and, and some of you probably are impacted by this new provision. Let's talk about the rapid response mechanism. As I said earlier, this is a first of its kind. I know that many businesses are very concerned about it. It is only about labor. It's only about freedom of association and collective bargaining. It's in an annex to the dispute settlement chapter. It's a bilateral piece to a trilateral agreement, meaning that the rapid response mechanism is only between the United States and Mexico. Canada found out we were doing this, so there is a rapid response mechanism between Canada and Mexico. But there is no such thing between Canada and the United States. So what the rapid response mechanism allows for is, again, this is a state-to-state agreement, so bear with me. The United States or Mexico can bring a complaint against each other or the other based on the freedom of association or collective bargaining activities of a specific covered facility. A covered facility could be any manufacturing, mining, or services company. So if there is an entity in Mexico that makes for example, tires, and they're not allowing any of their workers to unionize, a complaint can be brought to my office under the rapid response asking the United States to bring a complaint against the government of Mexico. This mechanism comes with expedited path to dispute settlement panels. So a case can go 
from my desk through working with the United States Trade Representative to a panel in 90 days. The United States is committed to, to handling each one of these cases within 30. Then there's all sorts of decision points where we work with the other government, but it, within 60 days thereafter, the United States Trade Representative can ask for a panel. And President Trumpka of the AFL-CIO last week made it very clear that there are cases coming to the Department of Labor any day now, and I believe them. I mean, they've been working on these cases for quite a while. As Susan noted, entry into force of the USMCA was July 1. So there's plenty of time for the AFL to put together some very strong cases that that may be, you know, with us in the in the very short future. Let's talk quickly about remedies. So what's the worst case scenario under the rapid response? I mean, I think you're already thinking to yourselves, there's reputational damage no matter what happens. Absolutely true. There's leverage for, for unions, absolutely true. But if a panel decides that there is a denial of rights, which is the term of art within the rapid response, if a company is found to have violated, have committed a denial of rights, they risk their tariff benefits under the agreement. Even though it's a government-to-government -government agreement, a specific company is at risk to lose tariff benefits. If a parent or a company, the same company or a company owned or controlled by the, the company that was initially found to have violated freedom of association rights, if it happens a second time, it could be company-wide and not just on the one product. And if it happens, I don't know how this could ever be, but if it happened a third time, the controlling company risks blockage of goods. So these are not small, minor remedies. There's actually you know, quite a bit of concern about them. The, the phrase in the rapid response provisions are remedies proportional to the severity. I'm not really sure we know yet how that works in a labor context, but like a lot of this, it's new and we will work it out. There is one, for those of you who've spent time and read the rapid response, or those of you who go to it, will be struck immediately about footnote one. Footnote one of the rapid response defines the scope of the mechanism and talks about, with regard to Mexico, we're talking about the annex and the rights and changes in the law that were enacted to address the annex. For the United States, it's much narrower. So when I say, what the heck does the footnote mean? The United States coverage for companies in the US only goes to covered facilities under an enforced order of the National Labor Relations Board. It's an enormously narrow section of the US manufacturing, mining, services industry. Canada, by the way, has very similar language. So I think maybe Greg may touch on that later. So the exposure for companies in Mexico is far greater than that in the United States. The fourth reason why USMCA matters is because the US Congress has shown an enormous interest in USMCA, as has the executive branch. The implementing act for USMCA gave 
a great deal of resources across government, much to my office in the International Bureau at DOL. So let me quickly go through this. The legislation set up an interagency committee that's chaired by the Department of Labor with the United States Trade Representative, and the committee is made up of six other agencies to assess compliance with the provisions of the trade agreement. And we, as a committee, are responsible for considering complaints filed not only the, under the rapid response, but under the labor chapter itself. Procedural guidelines for submission of those complaints were initially published on June 30th of this year as interim final guidelines. Comments were accepted to August 15th, and we hope to have final guidelines out in the next, let's say, two months. There was a task force focusing on forced labor created, not specifically on Mexico, but with provisions as to Mexico. There's an expert board created that's predominantly congressionally filled seats, two from Senate, two from House majority and minority, but also four from labor unions that are supposed to oversee compliance and monitor implementation of the labor reforms in Mexico. The Department of Labor was tasked with putting as many as five labor attaches in Mexico. We'll have two there in a month. These will be our eyes and ears. These will be folks engaging with the government of Mexico as well as stakeholders in Mexico. As I said, Congress has given us a little bit of work. And I won't finish without noting what my office has gotten. $210 million to bring on people and to provide technical assistance to the government of Mexico. Just last Friday, we put out two separate funding announcements for $10 million each. We have put out a $3 million employer-focused announcement in May to work in the auto sector. So periodically, we have been putting out these, these projects to try to address needs, both with the Mexican government, but as well as employers and workers in Mexico. So that was the very, very, very quick overview of what's going on with USMCA and why it should matter to you all. In the interest of time, I'm going to shut down here, but I am happy to field any questions later on. Thank you for your time. And Susan, back to you. Thank you, Matthew. We appreciate that. So now we're going to transition over and hear from Juan Carlos, and he will talk about the impacts to Mexico. Juan Carlos? Thank you, Susan. Oof, Matt, we were suspicious about the things that you weren't going to say, but now we all confirm them. So definitely on the Mexican side, there's lots to be done. And that makes and justifies the explanation that I will provide to you about the impact of the labor aspects included in the PEMIC. And I just want to make a, a reference here. We've all, each of our countries has given a different name to the treaty. And this is curious. In Mexico, we call it PEMIC because Mexico is the first name, Mexico, uh, Estados Unidos, and Canada. And you in the United States, you go, the U.S. goes first. And in Canada, the Kuzma is because Canada goes first. So, bit confusing, but we're talking about the same thing. And I want to thank you, Matt, as well, about that piece of advice 
that when you are implementing and reviewing the new labor standards out of the treaty, you have to call your labor lawyer. That's a fact. And the, the reason is because for Mexican standards, there is a significant change in the way we used to do things and things that will demand quite different bargaining strategies. The old system, we have to consider that it is gone, the old union system. And you may reference that the system has been in place for over a hundred years and we concur. In the previous century, the union system was part of this political element of control that our previous government used to do so by, that by being okay with the leadership, the top leadership of a union, you would be able to control large masses of people. And, you know, whether that system can be criticized or not, probably yes. That's what we had and that's what we used to. And of course, that brought a number of practices that were quite strange. It is surprising for many people to hear that you know, unions were run as true businesses. I mean, as you know, there's a there's lots of union leaders in Mexico that are incredibly wealthy. I suppose that does not happen in the United States. And at the same time, it was a, a business that was inherited because you know the secretary general of the union was able enough to maneuver things so can it transfer the, the, the union to sons and grandchildren. So that created, a, you know, unions made it an economic power and a political power. We're used to gaining seats in Congress so that the political party in power at that time had the majority of votes at Congress. Anyhow, I can explain about the sociological aspects of the unions in the past century, but I just want to make reference to this because it's important for all to understand how radical the changes are. And one of the main topics that we see from the labor provisions in the USMCA that were actually transferred to the New Mexican Labor Law, which was enacted past May of 2019, is the empowerment of employees. As of now, employees will have a voice through their secret vote to participate in lots of the most important decisions at the company in terms of collective bargaining. So I will explain in a bit how that works, but this secret vote issue is something that we were not used to, and it's definitely going to make us things differently. And as I mentioned, the, the, the rules are now, the labor rules contained in the USMCA are now reflected in the Mexican federal labor law, and they will be implemented by regions in Mexico. They, they wouldn't go straight forward to the whole country. So we have a few states that will have them in force in, as, as soon as in November of this year. And then in the coming years, other states of Mexico will, will have to do the same. Just going through rapidly, because we have limited time to make explanations. So this is just going to cover, not in great detail, lots of these principles, but I think it's for, for purposes of the audience, it's good to know that acts of interference will be heavily regulated and actually prohibited. Acts of interference is really any employer action that tends to put our unions under the employer's control. And of course, the legal definition is broader, but that's the essence of it. 
and in the way it was taken from the treaty to the Mexican law, various a bit. So right now we have some controversy in the way we interpret our labor law with respect to what it is in Agreement 98 of the ILO. Basically, the difference is that in the treaty, the um, economic contributions to the unions are prohibited, provided that they put the union under the employer's control, whereas in our labor law, it kind of justifies the fact that if those contributions, economic contributions, are stipulated in the CBA, in the collective bargaining agreement, they are fine. So, but I see some difference there that may eventually bring controversies that will be decided in courts. And as you know, in Mexico, we used to have some largely known practices that lots of employers used to contribute to the union, to the union's expenses, and in many occasions to the union leader's wealth so that you can have a stable, good relationship with your union. And that is something that it seems that it is gone now, or it will be gone once this is fully implemented. Freedom of association is definitely another of the key principles that now needs to be fully respected. And it is not that we didn't have it. We had it in our legislation. It's just that uh, it was not enforced or there was not the proper channels for enforcement. So now all employees have the right to decide which is the union that they want to select to represent them. They have the right to decide whether to join a union or not to join a union, or to form its own union, or even to resign from a union. That's clear and it is protected in the laws. And as you mentioned, certainly this past mechanism will be of great importance for the compliance with this principle. But here's where employers are asking in Mexico, because not everything is really clear. Do employers have the right to campaign or discuss with our employees about a union-free environment? That is something that is subject to debate, and it was not clear in the legislation. It would be nice to hear from my colleagues in the United States in this panel, whether if that's a recognized right or how it's treated in the U.S. or in Canada. Certainly, now employees have the right to be protected against unjustified dismissals because they decided to engage in union representation efforts from a different organization from the one that is actually party in the collective bargaining agreement. In Mexico, we simply decided to terminate those who wanted to join a different organization because the union leader and the union that we used to do business where was quite a stable organization, quite friendly and cooperative, and now employees have that right to be protected. The uh, closed shop provisions have also a, a change. In our legislation right now, the provision which establishes in the CBA that you can dismiss or you shall as employer dismiss someone who decided to resign from the union, it is considered illegal and unenforceable, which is right. But guess what? We still have in our provisions the union's right to establish a condition to join the union before being able to work for the company. And that has been assumed by the Mexican labor law. And in our view, as employers, it's also 
in violation of the applicable international treaties. You know, democracy is another huge topic for us. Now there's a, there are rules tending to ascertain that employees will be free to select their leaders by means of a secret vote. That, of course, represents uh, quite a change because, as I was mentioning in the beginning in my presentation, unions used to be seen as a business and transferred through generations. And now the fact that people that we don't have a close relationship with as employers scares us. I'm sure we will find our way how to do the right thing, but this is definitely something different. The secret vote that needs to be casted for some of the employment labor decisions, especially when we do collective bargaining, is another very important big difference. And I would say that's the hardest test of all. So we, in Mexico, if we're going to negotiate the terms and conditions of the CBA, remember, one year we revise wages, and every two years we revise wages and other conditions. So this two-year bargaining exercise is the one that its result will be subject to the majority of employees' approval by means of a secret vote. So that is what is going to really challenge the strategies that we will implement, because if there is no agreement reached or we are not able to convince the majority of the people, then we will have to go back to negotiate. So for, for the audience, which is mostly Canadian and U.S. business with operations in Mexico, you have to take this into consideration in defining your coming budgets. Now unions will have the duty of reporting the use of union dues and any really any employer contribution. And this has been also an issue of great discussion with union organizations especially in those cases in which the company was used to providing some sort of economic support. And as you may probably know, some of those monies were really for their personal use of the leaders. So now leaders do not want those contributions to be stipulated in the CBAs because they are going to be public. And if they are public and included in the CBAs, employees will, of course, ask to see where those funds are and or how were they invested. And bylaws of unions will be also made public. In terms of the CBAs, the collective bargaining agreements will require for its validity to demonstrate the majority support of employees also by means of a secret vote. And of course, a new CBA that we're signing, that requirement needs to be demonstrated before we're actually able to register that CBA with the proper authorities. Where in the past, things were quite simple. We just, company rep signs the CBA, the secretary general of the union signs the CBA, and we get it registered. So this is going to be totally different. And of course, this is going to bring, and this is a good, good piece of information, we're not going to have the typical baseless strike notices that we used to receive from unions that were just seeking an economic advantage, that they had no employee support. That's good, and I congratulate the changes for that. And of course, the, the elimination of the protective collective bargaining agreements that Matt was explaining about. So we need to revise that. They will be illegal pretty soon. They're illegal under the treaty, but it's just that the mechanisms for enforcement are not readily available yet. But starting in November 1st, 
they will be totally legal under our local laws in the first states in which the labor reform is to be implemented. I won't um, spend much time about the facility-specific rapid response mechanism that Matt just explained. I will just give a couple of comments there. First, there's really two phases process. One is an investigation process, one after the claim is filed, and that's done locally. If it's filed in the United States, comes to Mexico, and the Ministry of Labor in Mexico will have to deal about that claim and investigate that claim along with the facility that is being targeted, our companies. Keep in mind that this will affect directly your company in Mexico, and then the panels that Matt was explaining about. One of the recommendations that we are providing to our clients is since the penalties out of this mechanism are not against unions, by the way, even if the union is reluctant or, or negligent or cares nothing about the new rules, employers will be liable. So that means that's giving us some right to ask our unions to do their job. And asking our clients to do is to document and be ready to document any democratic exercise that it is practiced at your specific company. So to be ready in case you're surprised with one of these mechanisms. As Amat was mentioning, we are making a huge change, dramatic change in, in the dispute resolution process. We are gonna get read off conciliation on arbitration boards, which were dependent upon the executive power and transitioning to tribunals, part of the judicial power, labor tribunals. I think that's a good thing. It'll make tribunals a lot more independent because it was proven that the labor boards were really not independent from the head of executive power. And of course, now that this federal center of conciliation and labor registration which will be really the one setting and administering all the policy in terms of unions in Mexico that happens to be run by our common friend, Matt, that is very busy today. So our recommendations are, first, we have to learn and we have to understand the new rules. We cannot play the game as employers if we do not know the rules. So we have to do our homework on that respect. Second, we have to be really conscious that the way we're handling union relationships is going to be 180 degrees different. So we have to be conscious about that. And then we have to get together, we have to set goals, we have to make plans, and we have to make strategies so that we get the ultimate goal, which is continue to have a stable labor environment in Mexico. And thank you very much. That's all I have. Juan Carlos, thank you very much for that insightful review about the new challenges for Mexico. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Greg. We're going to travel north to Canada. Greg, take it away. Great. The interesting thing about the labor protections, which are a significant deal for Mexico, and as Juan Carlos has explained, are really breathtaking in the, the changes that are required in Mexico. And the premise behind this labor component of the trade deal was to sort of level the playing field, in particular in the automotive sector and some other sectors, so that the costs of protecting workers were not identical, but similar. 
So from a Canadian perspective, there's really no significant impact on Canadian companies because the federal and provincial legislation that dealt with employment standards and and labor code issues were already at, at a fairly high level. And when Matthew was talking about the U.S. exemption, that it only applies to those companies covered by the National Labor Relations Board, that is quite different from Canada. Because in Canada, only about 10% of our workforce is covered by the federal code or the Canada Labor Code. Everything else is covered by provincial legislation. And this trade deal will impact companies covered by either federal or provincial legislation. So that's, those are significant differences. The changes to the auto industry, which requires certain percentage of cars to be built with $16 an hour or more in terms of labor costs and certain domestic origin rules with respect to aluminum components for the automobiles, those, those will likely help retain jobs in Canada as they will in the U.S. And so there's, there's a lot of happiness to have those provisions in place. And on the Canadian side in negotiating this deal, labor unions had a strong voice. And I know, Matthew, we were talking about that, and he, he acknowledged that they were at the table and had a fairly significant role to play in writing these labor chapters. In terms of the impact to Canada generally of this trade deal, it's not really felt in the labor provisions. You know, the big changes to Canada are outside the labor components, such as changes to the IP. And, you know, that drugs, for example, have been protected for eight years traditionally in Canada. That's going to 10. There's a number of those things that will impact Canadians a lot more than the labor legislation. And as Matthew did say, that the rapid response teams that's a bilateral agreement that Matthew was talking about between the U.S. and Mexico to ensure compliance with the new labor chapter. Canada does have a similar arrangement with Mexico, but again, it's a bilateral agreement to ensure that the Mexican workers enjoy the same protections and freedoms of those enjoyed in Canada and the United States. Other changes in this agreement that are significant for Canadians are, is, of course, the introduction of uh, more U.S. dairy products into Canada, That's uh, but still retaining the supply management system that Canada has. There will be 3.6% more U.S. dairy products in Canada from the United States. That's, that's a new thing. The data sovereignty issues covered by this trade deal are new. They weren't in the NAFTA agreement because this is something that's come up since then. So that's pretty interesting. The other significant limitation on and Canada and Mexico is the provision in the new trade deal that deals with either country entering into a free trade agreement with a non-market economy. And you can read China into that. So if Canada, for example, entered into a free trade agreement with uh, China, there's a whole bunch of notice provisions so that the other participants in, in this trade deal, North American trade deal, will be able to see what we're doing with China, and they'll have the right to exit the North American trade agreement if they're not content with the trade deal done with the non-market economy. Those are some big changes. The other, I guess, significant change that we haven't talked about is the agreement will be valid for 16 years with a mandatory review of every six years. Now, that's something that 
wasn't in place with NAFTA. NAFTA didn't have a termination date, although it did have notice provisions so that countries could pull out of NAFTA, which, of course, President Trump initiated to result in the negotiations for the new trade deal. In terms of the benefit to Canada of this trade deal, one of the, the, the biggest benefit is the clearing of the fog of uncertainty because the U.S. is our significant trading partner. And with the NAFTA agreement being cancelled and negotiations for the new trade agreement were very difficult and it was uncertain whether we would get this deal, the implications of not having this deal for Canada were profound. But now that we have this deal, that fog of uncertainty is lifted, and that's had a tremendous benefit for the Canadian economy because people are now not reluctant to make investment decisions and so on. And for the Canadian companies that are doing business in Mexico, this trade deal will have profound implications, as Juan Carlos has, has talked about. Their whole system of labor and employment regulation has been changed, and if you have a company or uh, an interest in a company in Mexico, you'll need to consult with a Mexican employment lawyer, preferably Juan Carlos, and uh, have him review what your company procedures are to ensure they're compliant with the new regulations. And as Matthew indicated, the implications of not being compliant could be quite severe and that you would, your company would lose the tariff protections that have been negotiated under this, this deal. So those are, those are my comments from a Canadian perspective. This trade deal is a welcome deal, and I think it generally will be of a benefit to Canadian employers. Back to you, Susan. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate your presentation. So now we're going to turn it over to David, who's going to close us out for the presenters, and then we'll get to some of your questions in the Q&A. David? Terrific. Thanks, Susan. And geez, I'm so enjoyed the comments uh, that Matt and Juan Carlos and, and Greg have provided. And I think they really have done a terrific job in, in underscoring the foundation that this is a bit of a paradigm shift. It is a trilateral agreement, but it really, it, it no longer has the model that Mexico is going to be the lower cost competitor where work can be shifted for that reason. One of the central themes is focusing on the labor and employment is to raise those standards so that um, among the three countries, we have a much more leveled playing field. And I think that, that that block combined with if any of the three countries tries to cut a deal with someone else, and I think Greg's point on China is, is spot on, there's a notification and it allows effectively this, this whole agreement to be blown up. So it's an interesting, it's a little different. Most Americans think we only do bilateral agreements and that's what we're all about in this administration. This is not, it's a robust trilateral agreement with some very important bilateral components that we've talked about. I want to underscore that at this point, so much of the change is focused on the Mexican operation. So anyone as an American employer, if you have part of your supply chain or part of your operation in Mexico, not only gaining familiarity with what is in, in involved here, but affirmatively going through and understanding whether the new standards that have been laid out by both Matt and Juan Carlos specifically are being achieved. And this is this really means ideally a compliance audit is definitely a best practice that should occur within your own chain. Then there is the separate consideration with respect to competitors, because yes, 
There's a lot of policing through the complaint mechanism. You're not dependent on the government. And that's one of the key attributes under the uh, rapid response mechanism, the RRM, that individual companies or stakeholders, it can be employees, unions, et cetera, can actually file complaints and bring attention to shortcomings in compliance. So what that means is first, get your own house in order, make sure. That entails a self-assessment that absolutely should be done with the benefit of counsel and specifically Mexican counsel to make sure that you understand. Number two, from a competitive standpoint, survey and evaluate whether there are potential claims in which you want to take advantage of. This is part of leveling the playing field. If your operations are fully in compliance, you don't want to be competing with someone who is not meeting those requirements. Second point that I think is worth noting, there are developing regulations and guidance being issued by the U.S. Department of Labor. One particularly, and this deals with the targeted industries and the requirement for the labor value content, and, and that is the high wage requirement. The U.S. Department of Labor recently promulgated what the, is called an interim final regulation, an interim final regulation, and which means basically as soon as they published it, which was in July 1st, it became effective, subject to notice and comment. That comment period just closed the end of August, so we anticipate that there may be some updates to that regulation being put in place. But the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage Hour Division has now promulgated very specific guidance about how the high wage requirements are to be satisfied and met. What do you do with meal breaks? How do you determine what's compensable time? Whole host, think in terms of from U.S., what we typically deal with in wage hour, almost all of those concepts are now codified in the standard. So many of the answers are there. It's a very detailed set of requirements, and it's one that in order to assess the high wage requirements, you must be familiar with in order to be able to take advantage of the trade. Finally, just a word on the rapid response mechanism. Of course, all the labor and employment lawyers do gravitate to that, and that's because we're not necessarily day-to-day -day in the international trade business, state-to-state, -state, as Matt is, on behalf of, of the U.S. government and the U.S. Department of Labor. And so historically, if we've had a problem, a beef, if you will, a concern, we've had to present it to our government and hope that the government, in turn, would raise it appropriately through the government channels. This is a completely different paradigm that is now available to stakeholders, to, to each of us with, with operations there, in order to, and not only us, unions and others, to ensure that these new requirements that Juan Carlos has walked us through under the Mexican Labor Code are being fully satisfied. You could be the recipient of these, or you can be the one that initiates the complaint. It's a total of a 90-day process. It's very robust. The U.S. representatives, now the U.S. panelists, are specifically all very highly qualified, both from academia, Janice Bellis, Lance Kampa, as well as very experienced neutrals, Peter Hartkin, former head of the FMCS, Ira Jaffe, one of the best arbitrators around, another professor uh, from Rutgers, Kevin Colvin, and Ed Potter, who for many years was the U.S. representative at the ILO in Geneva, and after that also worked in the private sector with an international company. These are folks that are extremely knowledgeable, and they will have the ability to quickly sort through and render the resolutions. 
and there are a number of procedures in place that time doesn't allow us to detail what they are to ensure that the prescribed time periods are met and satisfied. So I think if you're a creature of, of history, this kind of feels for Mexico, kind of like when the Wagner Act and the Landrum-Griffin Act was passed in the United States, which is in the 30s and the 1950s, where we went through all of this change in union and, and appreciate Mexico is now going to go through that in a very consolidated period of time, combined with some of these other, other changes, including the ability to actually bar goods. So the penalties are much different than we're used to under the U.S. labor laws, where candidly, typically, if you get an injunction, you may get, you may have to post a notice if you commit an unfair labor practice. Those aren't quite the equivalent of what is available as remedies under the RMM, including the ability to bar goods or to bar trade in the specified goods from the facility or even from the company if it's a repeat violator. So they're powerful tools, very powerful tools. And in the short run, the call to action, I would suggest for the, our U.S.-oriented employers is understanding compliance, which includes audits with your Mexican counsel and making sure that your house is in order, and then to think strategically about how you can deploy these really important and very exciting new tools. Susan, thank you. I want to leave a little bit of time because I'm sure you've got some questions and, and comments. Thank you very much, David, and to all the presenters for all the great information. We do have a request from an audience member from Stephen. Stephen would like Matthew to run once again through the penalties or actions that can be taken for non-compliance. Great. So I'm assuming that the inference is to the rapid response. So look, in the effort to squeeze in 25 minutes something that I easily could have talked about for like a day, there was a lot of shorthand. And I'm really glad that Juan Carlos kind of added on that under the rapid response, no one's going to a panel immediately. The complaint goes to the other country. The other country goes to the specific facility, we hope. There's typically a 45-day period where there can be some sort of correction, where the responding government can work with the covered facility to address any legitimate concern. At a later point, the complaining government can, yes, bring a case to panel. So if a case goes to panel, and David, thank you so much for highlighting the panelists David went over the six U.S. panelists. There are panelists from Mexico as well, and also a bucket of panelists who are non-national. So on any panel, you'd have one panelist from each of those three lists. So if you're lucky enough to get, you know, any of the six that we put on the U.S. list, I think, you know, you've done very well. They're all very qualified. But if by chance a company wants to roll the dice, like, look, you know, why... Why not try to remedy something after, you know, working with your host government and already taking a reputational hit? But if you want to gamble and go to a panel and lose, you risk your tariff benefit at that particular factory. So if they're making tires, you may lose the, the tariff benefit. And I don't know what that what the, the harmonized tariff schedule is for tires coming from Mexico might be, but it could be a significant amount of, of income. If for some reason a factory or a entity that owns and controls a factory that it's already had a denial of rights finding once and you go second time and, and look, the likelihood of this is very small. But if it happens, you then risk company-wide loss of tariffs on 
more than just the one good. On the language in the treaty says such goods, meaning across the board. And then again, if you go for a third time, and I, I just can't imagine that this would happen, but if some corporation wants to risk going a third time to a panel and losing, they risk blockage of goods. So the headline is blockage of goods, but the likelihood is dramatically small. And if you're a U.S. company, you know, in if it's a, a U.S.-based company, very, very unlikely because of the very narrow coverage that I explained. But if, you know, you're a U.S. company working in Mexico, I guess there's the possibility that you could go to that third level. Hopefully that answers your question. Thank you, Matthew. Matthew, can we yeah. maybe keep you in the hot seat? And could you please explain again why the scope of the covered facilities is bigger in Mexico than in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. So it's just in what and how the negotiation went down. So, you know, obviously, when you're in a negotiation, you have certain leverage advantages. And in this case, you know, our position was that the covered facilities, and again, there are some sectors that are not covered under RRM, like pure agriculture. But for the covered facilities, and that's manufacturing, and manufacturing is defined in a footnote, it's also defined a little differently in the implementing legislation, services and mining. For those sectors, the, the negotiation went like, hey, we want to cover freedom of association and collective bargaining under the Mexican law and the protection, the interests in the United States were to protect as many businesses as could be. So the standard was, as I said in footnote one about you know entities that are under an enforced order of the NLRB, which is in, you know, doing the math in my head is a very small fraction of U.S. business. And when I was referring to Canada, and I think Greg said it right, that the Canadians merely replaced the NLRB with the Canadian Industrial Relations Board, which, as Greg noted, is largely public sector, which probably wouldn't, you know, be covered in this exercise. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Matthew. Well, we didn't have time today to get to all the Q&As, but we will still continue to try and respond to those that remain. And it's been a great program, a lot of good information, a lot of new things that we all have learned today. And so I am now going to close out the program and turn it back over to Peter. Thanks, Susan. And also to our panelists for sharing their thoughts and advice on today's topic. If you'd like to connect with any of our lawyers on the program, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. There you can also sign up to receive invitations to upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.